Twilight Zone grew in popularity as its second season rolled around. Rod Serling remembers that they were getting about 500 letters a week at that time. There are fan clubs in 31 states, and we received an average of 50 story ideas a week, he said. From fans who enjoy fantasy, the unusual, and the imaginative. Did you ever watch the Twilight Zone? <laughs> God. Remember the Twilight Zone with Burgess Meredith? Remember, he, he, he loved to read, and there was a nuclear war, and he had no friends anyway, and he was oh, down on the base of glasses. What about the mannequins that got two weeks off and turned into humans, and they were allowed to go out and shop for two weeks on their own, and then this one came back, and it was over two weeks, and the other mannequins went, come over here for a minute. Welcome, everybody, to Zoning Out. I'm Christopher Feinstein. John Sachs. I'm still Frank Bonacci. And Chad. We are here to discuss season two. Episode number one, King Nine Will Not Return, with an air date of September 30th, 1960. Gentlemen, how have you been? Oh, it's good. That's good. I got a question for you guys. You're much more familiar with the show than I am. Heading into season two, are you feeling extra excited? The same? Is it tough to even compare? Because I'm going in blind. I don't know what episode is which season. I'm just heading in. I screwed up and I looked at a lot of the the list of titles. And I was, oh, oh, oh. So, yes, I'm a little more excited for this season. Yeah, there's a lot. Oh. Of, there's a lot of big episodes coming up. Okay. It, like it, relatively quickly, too. Good to know. Yeah. Season two, uh, Sterling talks about how uh, Buck Hauer, he remembers it being a close call with actually cancellation before season two. But, you know, the bookstores were selling the Twilight Zone book was selling very well. A comic book series had been released, and the term "the Twilight Zone" has then become like a part of pop culture. So it kind of the second series real it did still suffered financial setbacks, but it, it's where it kind of hits its peak is in season two. I'm just thinking of like how it it hit the zeitgeist in 1960, where it became like a term uh, to mean like weirdness. It's like I just pictured some guy Mildred. You're in the Twilight Zone if you think we're buying those apples. <laughs> Millie, (laughs) and it's it's interesting for me that King Nine will not return is the season two premiere because it's a little familiar. This idea, it's really similar. I I had like my big first note is it's a a more specific reworking of where is everybody? It's like a thematic. It's essentially a reworking, spiffed up. In a yes. lot of ways, it's like even in the things, remember, there's a element that was taken out of the finished script. If we go back to episode one, we were talking about how in the end of that episode, there was, you know, the guy had hallucinated everything. And at the end of it, it in the script, but it didn't make it to the actual episode, there was a, a thing left over that kind of hinted, wait ticket. a minute, a movie ticket. Yeah. Serling corrected it in the Twilight Zone storybook. He added that in. Because it was something that he felt that like should have been because it like when anyone thinks about the Twilight Zone, it's you kind of you know supernatural you know things something sci-fi supernatural. Whereas the the pilot episode kind of lacked that, and this one kind of upped it a little bit. It's like all right now we're starting to get into this feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, it's like it's mm-hmm. it's him getting a mulligan on the pilot. It feels yeah. like yeah. 
I just had to take a sip of my Diet Coke. Uh, should I go through the beats? Are we still doing that? How do we do this? <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to go through actually with, I wanted to talk about, he used a real life mystery for this episode. Mm -hmm. All right, take us through the beats and then we'll get to it. Okay, yeah. So it's World War II. Well, first it opens with Sterling saying, This is Africa, 1943. War spits out its violence overhead and the sandy graveyard swallows it up. Her name is King Knight. B-25 medium bomber, 12th Air Force. On a hot, still morning, she took off from Tunisia to bomb the southern tip of Italy. An errant piece of flak tore a hole in a wing tank. And like a wounded bird, this is where she landed. Not to return on this day or any other day. And it's World War II. And the King-9, it's a B-25 Mitchell bomber. Uh, and that's a real bomber, by the way. Was crashed in the desert. Captain James Embry, played by Bob Cummings. He's alone, he's stranded. And there's, he can't find his crew. What about the crew? Hey, did they bail out? Did I order them to bail out? No. No, I didn't. So he's just wandering around. And throughout the whole time as he's like walking around, he's like losing his touch of reality. It's amazing because this is a one-hander and he's he's left by himself the majority to do all this work, this very varied work. And I got to give it to Bob Cummings. Great job. Eventually they, he stumbles on. What's that? No, I was going to say that uh, this is something that they improved on from where is everybody to where like during that, that episode, it's the actor was running around just, hey, everybody, where like just speaking all the dialogue out, you know, just out <laughs> yeah. loud to the air, which it's <laughs> like, all right, but no one's going to do that. Where, hey, you. Like, <laughs> As Emery, you know, had this entire, you know, internal monologue going on. When he talks out loud, it feels more natural. It doesn't well, feel like very, it doesn't feel obviously expository. for someone to pay attention to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Clyde! Sergeant Clyde! <laughs> you incredibly stupid jerk, you! You dropped your canteen! You stupid Bronx cowboy, you! You're in the desert now, you idiot! You're gonna need water! Yeah, it's not obviously expository. It comes out of character, not like for a need to move the plot forward. So this goes on. So he's just constantly just wandering around looking for his crew. It, it goes on for an interminable amount of time. Then he sees two jets pass overhead. Jets? Jet aircraft? How do I know about jet aircraft? This is 1943. There's no such thing as jet aircraft. But he understands that they're jets. But it's 1943 and jets had not been invented yet, like jet airplanes. They pass overhead and he's like, wait, and he starts to recognize, he's like, those don't exist, jets. Wait, how do I know jets? <laughs> Am I a jet? <laughs> when you're a jet, you're a jet for life. How should I know that? It's 1943. West Side Story hasn't been a popular motion picture yet by Robert Wise. He said those things. <laughs> and then he collapses. <laughs> And it turns out he's actually in a hospital. He's suffering hallucinations. So two doctors come over and they explain the situation. It's very odd. Yeah, I thought so too. So I checked with the Pentagon in Washington, his army background. Captain Air Force Rule B-25, Africa and Italy, 37 missions, discharged August 1943, recurrent fevers. Some suggestion of a psychological disturbance. But he was discharged before they could find out much about it. And this was his plane? His plane and his crew. Took off for Italy on what was supposed to be a routine flight. But Embry never went on that last mission. Reported in the hill and someone else flew the plane for him. And part of it, they think he's 
having like PTSD or what they call PTSD. It's just like crazy wacky syndrome. <laughs> they didn't have really, they didn't codify like serious yeah. medical conditions. He just needs a crack upside the head. <laughs> they didn't really think of those. Get this man some cocaine. <laughs> uh, it turns out there was a recent headline about the plane, the King Nine, being found somewhere. And that might have triggered it because he was supposed to be flying on that flight. It's also a redux of uh, the time travel plane episode that I really liked from season one, where he feels this guilt for not being on the plane when it crashed, mm. and those were his crewmen, and he feels responsible. This, like I, there's something that went on with Sterling in the army that he has so much, like so much survivor guilt, guilt yes. is is very present in his writings that something terrible had to have happened to them when he was in whatever war or whatever conflict that he was involved in. Because he was a paratrooper. I mean, so he, you know, he saw action, this guy. Something happened. That plane got shot down. One of his buddies got mowed down while they were, you know, sailing. I don't know. Well, something didn't happened. he watch, like, a friend do, like, a comedy bit, and he got, like, decapitated oh, by yes. something uh, that yeah, just yeah. fell? A box fell on him, yeah. A box fell on aid. They dropped no aid, and it killed his friend. Yeah, right. I about that. Wasn't even combat. They were just hanging out. <laughs> Yeah, just hanging out. He's like doing his Cagney impression. He's like, you see my Cagney impression? <laughs> hey, you dirty rap. <laughs> and this splat. It's like, that's going to be jarring. It reminded me a little bit of that astronaut episode too, where like he keeps, it starts out with three of them and it goes to two of them. And it's just him alone in the, in the loony bin. Arrigan! Or they and keep running crashes. through walls. Like the yeah, yeah, he just starts yeah. smashing through doors. He starts Hulk smashing through doors, that guy. Yeah, so <laughs> where were we? So he, yeah, it triggered survival guilt in him. The doctors say, listen, it's okay, Embry. You're okay. And then he leave, they leave. They, they, a nurse is carrying his effects over. Well, are they effects if you're still alive? It's just his clothes. They just they No, but people refer to things as effects. And they only refer know. to it as they're dead. It's like, do I have effects if I'm alive? Here's the just just effect. Stuff, then. Yeah, it's just your stuff. But is it only dead people stuff? Write us I in the know. comments. Mm. So uh, she's carrying his clothes. And uh, he puts his... She All's puts his stuff on the table. He puts his effects. <laughs> his, his living items. She puts them on the table. These are Mr. Embry's clothes. You left him in the examination room. Put them on the desk here, nurse. I'm going back in the room. I'll take them. Out. Yeah, I'd like to talk to him in a day or so. Fine, I'll go check on him. What's that? It's sand. And unless she does, the shoe falls over and sand comes out of it. Like a lot, a of, lot sand. of sand. A lot of sand came out of that boot. That guy was uncomfortable, man. Because <laughs> I hate the fucking thing. <laughs> I live by the beach and I hate going to the beach because you just get fucking sand everywhere. God damn sand. I hate it. Yeah. And they see it and it's like one of those moments is yeah. like, cause he, he imagined it. Right. And that's what we were referring to before in the originally find in the first episode, the pilot, they find a movie ticket, which was like, wait, they, they clearly say this was all a dream. You know, it wasn't, or it was manu it was imagined this whole thing. And this time, yeah, it's the same thing. And this time they, they use the movie ticket, so to speak with the sand. Yeah. What I found so interesting with this is that he used a, the inspiration for this story was a real life story. Do you guys know about the story of the, the lady be good? No. Just whatever no. I found in uh, Wikipedia, but it was, you know, not very. So the lady be good was a B-24 Liberator bomber during World War II. The plane was set to bomb Naples in 1943. 
along with 13 other planes. So it was a, it was a bombing run that was heading heading to Italy. There were high winds the day that the planes were taking off, so it got separated from the rest of its squadron because it had to take off last. The bad weather also led to a non-successful mission, so they didn't bomb. The winds were crazy, so they had to turn around, but the Lady Be Good flew back to Libya. That's where they took off from. It just never returned to the airbase. So according to the report, the bomber's automatic detection finder malfunctioned, and it flew over the airbase, and they sent up flares for it because they couldn't, this one plane didn't come back, but they couldn't see the flares because they couldn't communicate with them because of the winds. They got all disoriented. So all, I think it was nine men, yeah, it was nine men, all assumed to have been killed in a crash in the Mediterranean Sea. The wreckage of the plane was discovered in the Libyan desert in 1958. Wow. So I think that's the same year that the episode was taking place, 58, right? They said in 58? Yes. But and the wreckage indicated that all nine men bailed out. They were later discovered in various stages of the desert in the 60s, indicating that they parachuted out and landed in different areas of the desert and just died in the desert. Oh. They only found eight of the nine men. The ninth body has not been found. It's presumed that his parachute didn't open and he died from the fall. But what was really, part that was really creepy about the whole story was that in 1958, when it was, when the plane was recovered, it was immaculately preserved. So all the guns worked, all the radios worked. They said that there was a flask of tea on one of the counters, like in the plane, that was perfectly drinkable. It was like almost as if the plane moved in time and landed in the desert, and that was it. Whoa. So That's Sterling wild. found that report and said, hey, I'm light up this camel and write a, a, a <laughs> narrate a story into my dictaphone. <laughs> uh, did you know that? So I was wondering when I was watching the episode, did they build that, or is that some kind of rental? Like, And yes, that was a real B-24 bomber. Yeah, I couldn't that was find a anything on that. Yeah, and it's re it's a real bomber, a B twenty five, excuse me, B twenty five Mitchell, and it's it's yeah. There's I found like some weird thing about it, and it's like very vague. It's just like it's it's a private owner, and it's used in a few loc. It's been used in a few films, mm. and uh, it was like still operational up until I think uh, two thousand three. Have you ever been in one of those? Have you ever been in a vintage World War II bomber? It is like we the went most in Florida. Oh, you were with me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was it wasn't a B twenty five. It was the one with where the gun turret is on the bottom yeah, of the plane, was, which is I, the worst I didn't place. go up in the air in it. Did you go up? You went up in the air? No, with it. no, no. Did. I think uh, Mikey, my nephew, went up in the air with it. And your brother, I think, too. Yeah, those things look heavy to fly. They're just big. They're just all metal. Everything. Like a building. Like, all, like a flying like building. <laughs> yeah. And I asked, like, the pilot, boat. you know, they had to fly it over these things for air shows. It apparently has since crashed. That oh, dude, that one? Destroyed. Yeah, I that specific it. one. I didn't think it was going to make it off the fucking I said, tarmac. I that thing... Yeah, I that thing. That. I said, "What's it like flying one of those?" It's like you don't. It's like very. Everything's so heavy. Like every movement is very heavy in that thing. It's just, it's just amazing. And then, did you walk across the catwalk with the bombing bay? Yeah, dude, that was tight. I was a little bit huskier then too. Me too. And it's like not made for like. It's not, not made, made for the for modern me. man. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's not made for an old crazy boy. <laughs> <laughs> made for little fellas. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they made for, like, little tiny guys from, like, Iowa. Hey! Hey, <laughs> hey Scrappy! Get up on that bomb and clip it. It's stuck in there. Jump on it. <laughs> you can see a little guy, a little tiny guy, chicken, jumping on top of a bomb to let it loose. I mean, that thing, those things were so scary. I don't know how they got a camera in there, especially those big old 60s cameras, because there's a few shots in the cockpit 
Yeah. And you could tell, like, that's the only shot. Yeah, no, they, it's like, yeah, I don't know how you get the the equipment in there because it's so hard to move in those things. Like, they, you really didn't get a set. Like, you get a little bit of sense in the episode, but I'm telling you, in real life, it's a lot smaller. And these were their big planes. The bombers were their big ass planes because they were like they had a lot of cargo, and yeah. these things were tiny inside, tiny, tiny. And it's got to be unbelievable because it's like you're up in the air, and there's no, it's not pressurized. It's open, right? So you're just freezing to death. It's got to be the worst place on the face of the earth in the 1940s, but especially in that bot. And the one we went on had the turret on the bottom, and that turret you can't you can't access it from the main part of the plane. You have to be put in there before the flight and taken out after the flight. And you can't they just have radio communication between you. Like you can't get to the like you're in this tiny thing. And if, if the rest of the plane is tight, this little underslung turret, that thing's fucking teeny tiny. Like Warwick Davis would have trouble in there. Twilight Zone, brought to you by Prell Concentrate. Concentrated. So just this much gives you lots of lather. Prell Concentrate. Warwick Davis, anybody? Anybody? That yeah, got nothing. Left that left got nothing. No, no idea what that is. Well, Everybody just looked at me like you had to see the fucking ghostly, the complete blank stares. I could... I might... <laughs> Oh my God! Did you do you know about uh, the actor who played uh, James Embry, Robert Cummings? Oh, I know him. He's the finger baby. His career is the craziest story I've ever heard in my entire life. His film and television career began with so he was from Missouri and he was just a local, you know, local kid from Missouri. He was trying to get into you know Broadway, trying to get into movies, and he didn't think that uh, Broadway directors and you know the industry wanted a hometown boy from Missouri, and that uh, there was a demand for British actors in the 30s. So he pretended to be British and he named himself Blade Stanhope Conway, and he posed as an Englishman, and he was cast in several successful shows pretending to be English in, in New York on Broadway. From there, he moved to Hollywood in 1934, and he used the same tactic, but instead of being an Englishman, he pretended to be a rich Texan named Bruce Hutchins, who eventually landed the role of Jim Preston in The Virginia Judge. Holy shit. I and didn't know any of this. Yeah, and then after using his real name, he became famous in 39, and he, you know, he was in, uh, what was it, uh, Mark Girls Grow Up with uh, Deanna Durbin. He started, he was in Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Dial F for Murder. M for Murder, yeah. M for Murder, not F. Uh, Saboteur, he has like 105 credits, I think. But, but can I talk about my favorite film with him? And if you it? look, because I can't get my goddamn background to work, but if you look behind me, there's a lobby card behind me, and that's a lobby card for the movie Beach Party with Frankie Frankie uh, Avalon and Net Funicello, and he plays the old scientist. I forget the name of the scientist, but uh, everybody calls him the Finger, and he comes around and gives. He has this trick where he does this uh, martial art where he pokes you, and it freezes you, and he does that to the evil biker gang. Uh, well, they're you know Von Zipper and his biker gang. I'm not going to show clips for this, but understand this is a very important movie to me. <laughs> Do you, and w there was something else about him that was pretty incredible. So this episode was aired in 1960. 
Mm-hmm. He was born in 1910. Wow. How old do you think he looked in that episode? Uh, it's so hard to tell with this show. You could tell me he was he 22. Looked like he was in, right. He looked like he, but that was like part of his like whole, like allure that he looked incredibly young for being a guy who was born in 1910. Well, like, he, he plays been, Frank, he plays Annette Finicello's possible love interest in Beach Party. And, what <laughs> and year was she's Beach like a Party. teenager. What? Right. 63. Oh, uh, right. So. So he's 50. He's like, he he's an old man. 50s. He's in his mid fifties. He, in the sixties, he was in his mid fifties. He like did not look like he's in his mid fifties. <laughs> he was the romantic leading man in the beach party movie. He did not look a movie made for teenagers. Yeah. He passed away in 1990 and he was 80. So wow. His what last a run. Credit, yeah. He was the host of uh, his last credit was the, he was the host of the televised 15th anniversary celebration of Walt Disney world. Wow. Wow. He hosted that. That was his last credit. He also has a very funny connection with next week's episode, which I'll oh, save yes. for next week. Yes, he does. He pretended he to also, be a British guy in real life, and that's how he got in jobs. real life, and that's how he got cast on Broadway. Hello, and I'm Nigel, he, Nigel Smythe. And then he pretended to be a rich Texan when he moved to Hollywood, <laughs> and that's how he got his first starring role. He pulled a Charlie. That's amazing. Yeah, oh, this guy had balls, man. He was just a kid from Missouri who was like, I, I'm going to go make it, and he did. Good he for him. out. He had a good long career, like you know. He was they ageless. cast him in. Be- they said yeah. he was ageless. Amazing. He also was in the army. He was in World War II. He joined. Uh, he was in the air, uh, United, the Army Air Corps, as a flight instructor, and he, he achieved the the rank of captain. Oh, he was wow. very well suited for uh, this role. I love that. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, it's such a great story. I said, "Holy shit!" But in terms of story for the episode, not much there. It feels like you've been there, done that. Alone in the desert, right? Yeah, yeah, it feels like a mix of things I've seen already. I wish the season had started with episode two because episode yes. two did some things where I go, "Oh, this is where that came from. This yeah. is where that came from." I, I want to, yeah. When we get into episode two, I want to ask, like, is that where that came from? Because it's a so. lot of like, we'll, we'll save yeah, that we'll get, for we'll next there. week. We'll get there. But, uh, but yeah, this one was a very much. It felt like him. I got to get the second one. I got to get that pilot right. Right. That's what it felt like. Very yeah. much so. And I guess because they were having such tough time ratings wise it's just like let's reintroduce the show you know because it's just like they're trying to you know that odd it didn't have that you know big audience that they were expecting so even though it was critically well loved yeah i mean there's still there's a lot to like in the in the episode there's you know he play he's great he plays the role great you could tell obviously he's very entertaining yeah that's not an easy assignment for an actor it's just like okay you got to hold the screen for right. 20 minutes you know even just a yeah. little thing of like him picking he's seeing his captain's hat and picking it up and putting it on so it's like you know he's still trying to like reaffirm his authority over this situation of what's going on and there's a lot of little like nuanced things that are going on but he's just slowly slipping into insanity and he does he, he plays it very nicely he does it he does a very good job and the score this is was the great. tough thing about being surlane at this point with season two is because yeah. i'm watching the show and i'm just kind of thinking how's this going to end how's this going to end How's this going to end? You can throw as many little mysteries and side roads as you want, but it's like, I just need, you got to land this. And so now he's in a tough position because now there's expectations. Yeah. The people are going to, are going to need him to deliver at the home stretch or else it's not going to matter. And the, you know, the resolution is okay. But again, it's like season one had some incredible episodes with perfect endings. So if this was, you know, episode one of season one, I'd be like, oh, this is pretty good. But now I'm like, eh, I've seen this already. So it just felt like, a re- it felt like a refresher. It's like, this is the, what the yeah. show is about. Like, this right. encapsulates a lot of the thematic business of the show. So it's just like, it's just reestablishing itself. Good atmosphere. 
you know, uh, but again, I, I've seen this before, but solid yeah. on its own terms, like well made. Like if, if you took away the other episodes that did this already, I'd say, yeah. hey, pretty cool. But so it's tough in that regard. Yeah. They brought in a new composer for this episode, Fred Steiner. Yeah. Bernard Herman is usually the, he's like the common Twilight Zone. Well, he was doing the theme, uh, the, the original theme song was his. Yeah. And I think towards the end of season one, they started putting in the pot, like the doo 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 doo. Which no, I that didn't start until no, this, this episode. This, this episode. This the first oh, it one. is this. Oh, right. Time I heard it. Oh, my God. Yeah. We forgot to bring up that, though. Doo 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 is finally yeah. there. This is where, that's where it kicks in. Holy shit. We forgot to even mention that because I, I, I don't know why. I had it in my head that it started. They just changed the, uh, the opening last season, not necessarily yeah. the theme song. Oh, shit. Yeah. So doo 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 is here. So yeah, that's a <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> Yeah. Is there any? What was the impetus to change it? I don't know. Was was there was there a note from a specific producer who wanted to change it up? Bernard Herman is it Bernard Herman or Fred Steiner who does? No, it's Bernard Herman who did the original first season. Yeah, but I'm saying with the that that the do 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 part. Is that Bernard Herman do 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 do? No, do 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 is Fred Steiner. Fred Steiner. Well, Fred Steiner, he you know he was like a cornerstone sci-fi guy. Like he does Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation. Like he was like oh, Jesus the Christ. guy for science fiction. So he came in with doo-doo-doo-doo and blew this ox off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because the original theme, it's, nice, it's a nice piece of, you know, just atmosphere. Yeah, this is... Doo-doo-doo-doo. As soon as you hear doo-doo-doo-doo, like you know you're in for some shit. I don't know from that... Like the, that's what the yeah. original theme was, which is great. It sets the mood, certainly, but it's no do 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 do. It's none of that. Yeah. I need the do 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 do. Well, I think we're all in agreement with the do do do. Yeah, I'm with you there. So yes, big ups for the do 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 do. I like how uh, Embry started questioning the reality of the situation at one point. He starts, yes. you know, switching between saying things out loud and having thoughts in his head. So he's like, I'm lying in the desert with a fractured skull. I'm dreaming. It's kind of nice. And I, I like the method of, uh, you know, they show this method with someone off camera who would read the lines to the actor and have him react to it. They had him record his, uh, Cummings recorded all his dialogue beforehand and they played it back to him while he was on set. So he's reacting to his own voice and his own cues instead of having just someone read the dialogue off set, like they off screen, like they would normally do. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of fun. And they do that again. In future episodes, became like a thing in the Twilight Zone. Anytime someone's having a inner monologue, they're they're actually playing it to them, so they can react to their own. Mm. It's because you know, I mean, if you're an actor, well, you got to get the timing right. If you're an actor, you you, you know, you're in you're if you're method, whatever the hell you, you know, you're you're in a headspace when you're doing that, and then who knows when you're going to shoot yeah. it two weeks later? It's like to have some guy just you know. I have a, a lighting grip just for reading for you. you know, how are you going to be easy to act to yourself then? Okay, now you are very scared. Right. You're moving slowly. Your head has cracked open. You have fractured right. skull. Thanks, Cliff. It doesn't help. Cliff, go, go smoke. <laughs> go smoke. <will> you? <laughs> Crack her open that pole ball and let me get back to my acting business, would you? All right. It was nice to be back, though. It's very good to be back. back in the back in the saddle of the zone. Yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah, we're back, baby. Do, 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 do. And now, Mr. Serling. Inside this curio shop next week, from amidst this old school Rococo and some fusty moth-eaten antiquary, will emerge a bottle. This one. 
And from it will step a genie to give Mr. Luther Adler four wishes. But he'll discover, as will all of you, that there's an economics to magic, a high cost of wishing. Next week, a most intriguing tale, The Man in the Bottle. Thank you and good night. <laughs>